Hello and welcome to the Coffee Curious Podcast. Conversations inspired by coffee, hosted by me, Maxwell Clement Ashwood. In this episode, I chat to Lynn, whose passion is wine. Lynn's just moved to London to work as a sommelier in a two-Michelin-star restaurant. We often compare coffee to wine, and I was really keen to hear what Lynn thought about this. Welcome, Lynn. Hello. Thank you for agreeing to sit down for the Coffee Curious podcast. Thank you. Uh, And we're sat down in London. We are. But I don't know you from London. I met you in Bath, in our coffee shop. Were you interested in coffee significantly before you moved to Bath? I was, to a certain extent. Yeah. I'll be totally honest. It was more of a fuel instead of a passion of mine. Then I quickly found out that your, I guess maybe your choice of career path or passion is wine. Correct. Yeah. Uh, And would you... I mean, for me, in, in coffee, we talk about this all the time, like parallels with other drinks, and wine's an obvious one. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, was part of your peaked interest, you, you, because of your interest in wine, mm-hmm. you were almost ready to be interested in coffee when it presented itself in that way? Yes. It wasn't deliberate. It wasn't a choice that I knew I made, but it's something that definitely just happened that way. Yeah. One thing that I would find is I would, when I first started getting into wine, I'd go to these wine tastings and I'd be really overwhelmed by it and people would be picking out these flavours and I'd be like, how, how are they getting grape from that <laughs> wine? Of course it tastes like grapes. <laughs> like what? Yeah. And then I'd go for a break and I'd go for a coffee and suddenly I'd be able to pick apart these flavours. So uh, the question I ask everybody on the podcast uh-huh. is, um, was there a singular cup of coffee that really piqued your interest or changed your mind or was it a gradual process is there any cups of coffee that stand out in your mind Uh there was definitely one uh when i was in stockholm so last year i took six weeks out of my working life to travel and i went around scandinavia by myself and it was incredible and i was already on cloud nine and i was traveling and just living the life going to galleries and museums and it was great and i went to this lovely little district in stockholm called sodermalm Okay. I, I, wish I, I wish I could nod and say yeah. I knew. But. <laughs> um, but a place called Drop Coffee. Yes, I know Drop. Sure, yeah. yeah. So I went in there. I'd heard a lot about it. I ordered a flat white and a boiled egg. Okay. Because a boiled egg was an offer and I just thought it was hilarious. So I was like, of you, course I'll have a boiled egg with my no. flat white. <laughs> and um, yeah, I was sitting down. I actually don't remember much about that flat white. But what I do remember is that the gentleman behind the counter had made an incorrect coffee for somebody and said, hey, this is going, do you want it? It's free, just have it. And it was a filter. And at that time I didn't drink filters and I was like, well, give it a try, okay, let's see. And um, yeah, I just remember having a sip of it and I'm pretty sure I laughed out loud actually. <laughs> this is ridiculous. I was just like, what, what have I been doing drinking flat lights for the past two years? Um, this is a different world. Um, I wish I could tell you some incredible tasting notes that I had, but I, d- I don't even remember. I just remember it being so balanced, really. Yeah. There wasn't anything that stuck out. There wasn't a, the acidity was there. There was different parts of it that were all there, but it was just like, ah, oh, just but, like a perfect circle. And it was, everything was there in all of its glory. And it just, it just made sense. Yeah. And suddenly coffee was a different thing, you know? Obviously, you've set the scene and you're saying it was an amazing trip. Yeah. You've taken this time out. Yes. Um, And so obviously that sort of environment and context plays into your enjoyment of things. Totally. Uh, But do you also think about that, and I guess I'm asking the same question about wine, Mm. about trying to limit that when you taste? Well, that's the thing, because everybody says, oh, this wine is amazing, but I am sitting in a lovely restaurant with ironed white tablecloths and all your glassware is shining, you know? But... 
I feel like I may have used to be like that, but now I'm actually the opposite and I prefer it completely the opposite way around. And when you strip it all back and when you sit down and when you're at a wine tasting in a really damp room with all these crazy winemakers, suddenly it's so much better. Um, but I feel like now my knowledge is that bit further, I, I kind of have that outlook on things. For other people who aren't professionals or don't know as much about it, that's probably completely opposite. And I'm interested, uh, you said you went to wine tastings and they were off-putting. It was intimidating. But why did it not put you off completely? Because it interested me and it challenged me. And I'd, I'd go into these massive rooms and not only would I be 25 years younger than everyone else, but I'd be the only woman in the room. And I'd go, oh, this is not for me, what am I doing? And all these people would be saying these crazy things and I didn't even know what these words meant. But it was exciting and it pushed me on and it motivated me, you know? When somebody knocks you down, you go, I'm gonna prove you wrong. wrong. Yeah, if, if, if you're that type of character. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, if anything, that spurs you on even yeah. more. But it also showed me that it's like, well, actually, I'm not one of them and I don't think I'm ever gonna be one of them. But, but if I'm gonna be my own person, I actually think that's a lot more interesting the way I'm doing things, you know? Sure. And I want to talk to someone about, about wine who's really interested in it and is vibrant about it and excited about it and I want to be that person, you know? Yes. So that spurred me on and I'm like, actually, no, because if there was another woman who came in, I want to talk to them, you know? Yes. And I, I want to be that person. I want to be that sort of line. Yeah. And I think it's really nice to... You sort of realise you could be a different access point. Absolutely, yeah. And so now um, you're at a two-star Michelin restaurant. Yes. And your journey as a sommelier uh -huh. amongst this. So just from a wine point of view, what's the benefits for you? So at Henry's, we had a very short, uncomplicated, really concise wine list, which yes. I loved. Yes. I knew everything about everyone that we had on and I really enjoyed the sort of, it was just so approachable and it was really, really nice. However, I needed to expand that and I can go, yeah, okay, so those 20 wines, I know like the back of my hand and that's great. However, with the stage I want to be at and with the level I want to go, I know I need more than that. Mm -hmm. um, so where I am now is very, very different. <laughs> so we have, uh, yes, huge wine list, and it's the prices and things that blow my mind. You know, it's, it's, it's not rare for people to spend a thousand pounds on a bottle of wine on a night. Wow. And um, some of the things that I've tasted since I've been there is just totally just like it's, you think you know the world of wine mm. and you think there's a, there's a time when you get almost a little bit cocky about it and you go, oh, man, that was amazing. I've got this job, <laughs> I'm amazing. And then you taste one thing and you're like, yeah, I know, I know absolutely nothing, you know? Sure. Um, but it's refreshing and it's nice. And that's what's so obsessive about this industry is the fact that it's, it's ever-changing, it's ever-growing, you're never going to know anything. Yeah. And that's why you do it, you know? Well, it reminds me a lot. It's an interesting aside. I can see the parallel with coffee, yeah. which is that if you're passionate about a subject, you need to work in places where you get to explore your own interest as well. And so that's something that coffee struggles with because it's we want people to be the most knowledgeable, passionate baristas, but then we only want them to have a house blend and one coffee that changes every six okay. months. Yeah. Which invariably, if you really want to pursue your own knowledge and uh, expose yourself to the most interesting coffees, you're yeah. not going to get it from that job. But in coffee, you often have to continue your education alongside your work. Maybe that's, maybe the work supports it. Maybe the coffee shop um, pays for a qualification or something. Mm. Um, and you kind of have to do both really. Yeah. Is it all in one now where you're working or do you feel you need to continue to do qualifications outside? Yeah. I still feel at the stage I'm at, I've really only been doing what I'm doing for a year. Yes. When I, when I put it straight. I, I do do wine courses on the side. I do the WSCT, um wine, wine levels um, and I work alongside that and at the start I find that very very difficult because it was very much me sitting with a textbook doing it by myself and I was kind of going 
why do people enjoy this? You know, I don't want to learn about Bordeaux classifications. I don't even know what Bordeaux tastes like, you know? Yes. Um, and I find that very hard. But you really, one thing that I've really learned is you need both sides. You really of, of course. You've yeah. got to taste. If you can't taste, you don't know it. And yeah. that's when my passion actually sparked as well, because I kind of realized, yeah, what what is this without tasting? It's wine. Like, 100%. don't be ridiculous, you know? You, mm. you really need them both together. But no, I definitely feel like it also, tasting more and more makes you want to know more and more. You want to know, why yeah. is that appellation like that? Why do those grape varieties need to be like that? Why does it need to be aged that much to be called that wine? Clear something up for me. The, mm -hmm. the wine courses, yeah. is there a difference between being a master of wine and a song? Uh, yes, so pretty much anybody can call themselves a SOM if they really want to. Okay. So I've actually just sat my level three WSET, which once you have that qualification, you are officially a certified sommelier with the WSET, which is a great qualification to have. H however, a master of wine, you're talking, that's another 10 years down the line yet. Okay. That's very much, you've got to know everything back to front. Yeah. There's there's no there's no hiding if you don't know things in sure. in a masters and there's oh there's and a I, huge difference huge huge difference. Do, I'm interested to know whether people who have that qualification would you ever meet them in a restaurant or are they doing other things? Are they master? Oh yeah, absolutely, yeah. Abs absolutely. I've met numerous at tastings and they're also the people that you don't expect to be. You're like oh are you now? Oh, yeah. Nice to meet you. Hi. <laughs> um, no, I met. The guy who buys for Waitrose at a tasting last year in London. Yeah. And well, I guess that's what I mean is um, you've met them through going uh, to tastings, and but that person buys for Waitrose. Do they? Do the master of wines end up in those kind of buying roles and stuff rather than serving you wine? Often they do because it's more of a lifestyle. You know, I work 15 hours a day. That's not something that is a lot of people want to be doing when they have families and kids sure. and lives, you know? Um, so yeah, quite often people take a step back so they write wine lists for restaurants, which is another great thing to get into. Um, or they buy, they travel, um, they definitely get more into the sort of trade side of things instead of actually serving the serving the consumer. You were talking about being exposed to different flavours and are, are your favourites changing all the time? 100%, yes. So when, when I look back at sort of... What you loved. What I loved a year ago was really big, punchy, fruit forward, high acidity, like really big, bold Aussie Shiraz or something, you know. Yeah. I like big flavors because for me, I would go, oh, I have a palate, I can taste cherry from this, you know, and I'd be, oh, I'm amazing. What I Most exciting, to, to pick um, a flavor out is exciting. Though, it's right? very, yeah. very, very exciting. But then now what I like is I the totally different side of the scale. I just really like more restrained styles of wine. So if you give me a white burgundy with a really nice minerality, high acidity, and sort of a little hint of spice or something. Mm. And you, when you need to eke that little bit more and that little bit further to actually identify the flavors, it's so much more satisfying. satisfying. But this is a really interesting point which we have in coffee, which is I think wine, ex there's an acceptance, tell me if I'm wrong or right, that when you start, you're in a different place to when you've really got into it for several years. We don't, a lot of coffee people don't like that idea because it feels exclusive. They want everyone to be at the same point at the same time. Mm. Which I'm like, you know, that's a nice, I guess, I see why you want that, but it's also, it's just not true. It's not reality. And it's actually okay to acknowledge that, you know, let's say your hobby is, I don't know, model boats or something. Yeah. <laughs> With that, we're like, oh, of course, you get into it over years, you know all the different boats, and you appreciate. I mean, I've chosen model boats, it could be any kind of hobby. <laughs> but often what I find is like with a geeky hobby, we don't call it exclusive because we don't mind that it's exclusive because it's geeky. Whereas um, with coffee and wine, you, you have to acknowledge that when you've been into it for years, your reference points change, what you enjoy changes, and that's cool too. That yeah. If it didn't, you wouldn't keep doing it, right? It would just totally. get it would just get boring. Totally. Um, and I think with 
with coffee, we need to be like, it's okay, you know, like somebody who's new to it. Um, the important thing is not look down to them and say, I've heard people in coffee say this. Uh, <laughs> you say you love a coffee, right? <laughs> when you're new to it. And then someone who's been in it for years, like, oh yeah, I used to love that coffee too. Oh, and you're like, oh come on. <laughs> come on. Do you know how you sound? Like, because also people who have been in it for years might still love the same thing, right? But it's interesting, like anything with opinion, it could be film, could be art. There is that potential for conflict, right? Yes. Do, do you see that in your experiences in wine? I do, I do. And I feel like that's that you get to a point where you realise how much you love what you do when you find out that people don't like a certain style of wine that you like, mm. or people have had different experiences with wine than you have. So I remember, for example, um, last year I was, I just brought on a Beaujolais to the list and I was very, very proud of it and I was very happy about it. And um, I tried and tested lots and this was, this was the final one and I was so happy with it. And I remember a gentleman came in and he just didn't like it. And it wasn't the wine he didn't like, it was the style. He just said, oh, there's nothing to it. There's no structure, there's no finish. It just ends and there's nothing there. And I was like, no, 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 no. I've met this winemaker and he's a really nice guy, okay? Yeah. He, he lost 50% of his harvest this year and he still produced this wine, okay? This is a certain style that you perhaps don't appreciate and you mm -hmm. like more tannic wines or more acidic wines, whatever that may be, that's fine. But that's, a sort of that's a place that I particularly find that I actually really like lighter styles and more, yeah, sure. more restrained versions because they sort of you sip a wine and it gives you a little bit but it doesn't give you all it's got and it makes you want more and more and more and more so yeah it's definitely something that you find and you accept differences, and there, differences yeah opinions. and that's interesting as a service provider right because mm -hmm. you you want people to love what you're doing and it's not necessarily you know anyone who's worked in services come to that realization you can't please everyone and it's sort of understanding what that means you know have you not pleased everyone because you did a bad job or is it just because of this difference for preference i've noticed in coffee that when people get into it for the first time they're very black and white about it and actually this seems to happen in anything that their specialism in you start to you desperate to learn some rules uh, and then you're in it a long time and very experienced a lot of other people who've been in a long time have let some of those rules go and are a bit more sort of open-minded that actually at the end of the day it, it is opinion. What does, what's wine like for that? I think I've definitely become a lot more accepting. When I'm tasting certain wines and I don't like it particularly or I don't enjoy it, that's fine. But I appreciate the the things and the steps that people have gone to make this wine. So the, so the, the, the story changes your appreciation of it? I shouldn't say it does, but it definitely does. <laughs> no, but these are the things that, so it's probably like coffees, people don't want it to, they want something to speak for yeah. itself. And I'm really interested to know whether the best cup of coffee 20 years ago was that much worse than the best cup of coffee today. Exactly. And I actually don't think it was. Uh, I think the progression is understanding why that coffee was good and getting more coffees that are good. Yeah. But also a lot of the progression, it's about widening experience. So for example, in Rwanda, somebody have now, they never used to do natural coffees. Mm. Now they've made it legal to do natural coffees and there's mills doing it. Now I'm really excited by those because I'm, you know, obsessed with coffee and want to taste um, yeah. interesting coffees, right? And not just me, but my customers. And that's something new for us. Mm -hmm. And is it better than the washed coffee? Not necessarily. Does it represent progress for the coffee industry? Yes, because it means we are doing more and the producer is exploring more. Yeah. The downside of that there, which some people don't like, is sometimes you're exploring and it's not as good, but because it's new, 
everyone jumps on that bandwagon but that never lasts either if it's new and not very good it will be this year's hot trend and then uh-huh. it will go right it's the same with wine you're talking about natural coffees natural wine is huge and that's yeah. great and people are so excited by it and then you also bring in all the sustainable agriculture and wines are being biodynamic now and people love that and people are excited about it and i'm the same when i see a cloudy orange wine that looks really funky and actually tastes really nice yeah. i'm probably going to be really excited about it and I, i'm yeah. absolutely fine with that and, and i like the way that that's moving forward i like that people are more open to it i like that when people come into a restaurant they don't just order the most expensive burgundy on the list i like that and i think it's important yeah. to to have that openness and realize yes we are moving forward and that's okay maybe some people don't like that a big thing now is natural fermentation yeah. you know do people want yeast to naturally be present or do they want to add things to make it present mm-hmm. you know do people want to allow malolactic fermentation to happen which is a thing which basically gives a really sort of buttery notes to a wine and gives you sort of bread and butter and that really nice dairy cream flavor people let that naturally happen because they think it adds something to a wine but people also stop it because they want a really fresh, really mineral, high acidic wine. But is there a theory that that yeast uh, isn't the character of the wine? As in... It's totally opinion. It's yeah, true. Exactly. That's a really yeah. hard It's the same question. as coffee. <laughs> no, no, no. This is, yeah, it's supposed yeah. to be a hard question because cause I, you know, because you're like, what's human and what's not? What's what's the natural character of anything? Yeah. You know? Well, some a lot of people stop it because they don't like it. I would say the vast majority believe that that is the expression of the wine and it should naturally be there. It should be naturally present yeah. because it's it's the same thing of sort of just taking it all back to, to the roots. In terms of producer relationships, mm-hmm. quite a few coffee roasteries want to talk about a relationship they have with a producer and that they buy coffee from that producer every year. Yeah. But then what happens when you say, okay, we buy amazing coffees, but then that producer has a bad year? Yeah. Okay, so, so, so what's, as a company, you're like, okay, so do we value, we want to have this relationship year on year, and that's part of who we are as a business. So for me at Kalana, we're saying to people, we scour the earth and use our relationships every year to mm-hmm. find the most exceptional coffees. Yeah. That means we won't buy from the same producers every year. Yeah. So you, so, so the way you're working now, mm-hmm. if it's not a great vintage, you're not going to buy it. Oh, absolutely not. No, no, no. no. It, in a bad vintage, if it's not good, it's not good, it's not going to sell. But it's, quite often a lot of producers will also say, actually, I'm really proud of what I have here. This is this is my baby. I'm not going to I'm not going to declare a vintage this year. And that does happen. Oh, okay. Which I think is, so is great and honest and yeah, it's not great for them, but if they accept it and if they, if they know it's not great and it's not going to sell and they don't want to put a bad name for themselves, of course, I'm not going to sell it. So in, in a way, it's like any agricultural business, you know, you, yeah. no matter how good you get as a producer, mm. you're still at the whim of things you can't control. Yeah. And so uh, also in coffee, we have these, um, what everyone in specialty coffee acknowledges as an overpriced you know, something that sells on its story that actually, funnily enough, doesn't even score high enough to be specialty coffee, but it's some of the most expensive coffee in the world. So there's uh, the, the most famous one is Kopi Luwak, which is the coffee that's digested by a civet cat in Indonesia. Okay. It goes through the digestive system. Nice. <laughs> comes out the other end. <laughs> and I've not heard of it. Have you not heard of it? Yeah. Why have I yeah. not heard Good. of this? Well, you won't have heard of it in our shop. <laughs> And basically, the story was that the civet cat goes around the forest floor and only eats the best cherries, therefore selects the best coffee. And so this all sounds, you know, I mean, yes, it sounds weird, but it's often on those lists of, you know, things to do before you die. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, but then you, you dig into it and actually it's, uh, first of all, it's an ethical concern, which is it's often low-grade coffee force-fed to a caged civet cat. But 
take that to one side, on blind taste tests, they don't score high enough. Exactly. So, so that's an example of story becoming way too strong. And it's what you said earlier when you said, oh, I probably shouldn't say it, but story does have an impact. Mm-hmm. And that's the worry is that story becomes so powerful that we actually lose that authentic quality. So in wine, is it quite well regulated? Do the general public buy into stories where the wine is actually in the trade? Everyone's like, well, that's not very good, but it sells. Mm. Is there a lot of that? Well, a lot of it is regions. A lot of people stick to what they know. They have this sort of preconception in their head that every French wine is great. So why do you only have this many French wines on your list? You know, you get that quite a lot. But no, you you, you get bottles of wine. You have Domaine de la Romani Conti is one of the most famous and they, they sell vintages for £15,000 for a bottle of wine and you know you get in wine there's huge collectible items and it's all about it's all about that particular vintage it's all about the maker do they drink it ever? No. Do sometimes they leave it too late and then they open it and they realise it's gone? Yes it happens. Wow. But that's you know it it can't be helped. Sure sure. It does make it very exciting yes but there's even there's bottles of wine in the past couple of weeks there's been 20 that have been oxidised. Yes, it's a £750 bottle of wine that we now cannot sell, but it's a risk you have to take. The problem with any specialist field, whether it's wine or coffee, um, is this idea of snobbery, this idea of emperor's new clothes, and especially when something costs more as well. Uh, and, And in coffee, often people think, oh, this is silly, it's just a cup of coffee. Obviously, I'm sitting here talking to you because you don't think it's just a glass of wine. Mm. And I'm sitting here because I don't think it's just a cup of coffee. But I've just talked about points where it is overpriced. Yeah. What do you think, you know, I've heard people say about wine, oh, you know, the high prices are just the story. And actually, once you get to a certain price, you don't get differential in in quality. Mm. How do you feel about, you know, you saying you sell a a bottle for a thousand pounds? Do you think, sure that's a really interesting wine with an amazing story you can't get it anywhere else in the world I guess it's worth a thousand pounds or how do you feel about the pricing and it's hard because the especially where I am now I feel like I've really just started getting into that world sure and when I'm kind of when I'm out of work and when I'm living my regular life would I think that was okay absolutely not but when I'm at work and when I see the lifestyles that people who come and live and mm-hmm. when I see that yeah, this person's actually dined in this restaurant 200 times and they drink this bottle of wine, they spend 5,000 on a bottle every time they come in and that's fine. And we taste every single wine that we open, yeah. if it's by the glass, if it's by the bottle, if we've mm-hmm. tasted it 100 times, it needs yeah. to be tasted. And I taste these wines and I go, yeah, you have a minute and it's 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 incredible and it's it's another, it's another level of wine. Would it be able to be made again? Perhaps, perhaps not. Well, I think there's this, I guess the real question there is, yes, people are willing to pay a lot of money for something. So the Kopi Luwak story is they're paying a lot of money for something that's not very good. So in coffee, the one is geishas, right? If you taste them blind around the table, everybody agrees they're really good. You're like, wow. In fact, when you taste it blind, people cut brown and then they go, that one's expensive. But you don't know how expensive it is until someone tells you the price. Mm. And so what happens then is because it's accepted they're expensive, there's examples which just go to money which I don't think it's worth for the cup quality. As in, I think if I taste around, I can find other geishas as good for far less. So that's where I, yes, I think quality should get more money and and, Mm. you know, something's a one-off and I think it's cool that something can, a great coffee can make loads of money. But I'm also aware that there's a price in my head where it's not gonna get any better. 
and then it's just because it's unique in some way. But that's also because with wine you have point systems and quite a lot of people are really big into these point systems and wine professionals will come in one day, they'll sit around a table and they'll do blind tastings and, and they'll taste them all and they'll give them, a, they'll give them a rating. And yes, that's that rating on that day and that's the average from all those professionals. Mm-hmm. That's great. They've been given 91 out of 100, brilliant, good for you. If you give them that same wine the next day, would they give it the same mark? Probably not. But it's about whether you want to play with those things, right? Yeah. But that's what I think is so important is having your own bloody opinion. Because especially when I got into it, I was just like, no, it's expensive. It's great. I should like this because it's from this region and mm-hmm. this maker is very well known. But no, I've, I've 100% stripped that back. Um, I'm interested in, um, in coffee. People talk a lot about, okay, you have a passion for coffee and you try and work in it and uh, learn everything you can, visit the great places, taste. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for a lot of people, there's a, a question around career paths. So the people who often do very well in specialty coffee are kind of entrepreneurial. They start their own business or sort of have that, they're not looking to just work up within a structure. In wine, is, is there sort of career paths that people take? I know you've said you don't know what you're gonna be doing and you just wanna soak it all up. Yeah, at the minute I'm a stage where I'm working in an amazing place. If I'm going to be here for, for a few years, that's great. Soak it up, work with these people, be surrounded by this new world. Brilliant. But, um, especially recently, there's a lot of people writing books now. There's a lot of people starting their own training pro- programs that are making things more exciting and trying to strip back the textbooks. And that's something that's really being, bring, being brought in at the minute, which I really like. Um, but yeah, there's, there's so many different paths you can take, but it's really, yeah, it's all in your control. And I think that's one thing I really learned. Because I used to, yeah, I used to really think there was only one path, there's only one thing you can do and you have to work in a fresh restaurant and you just need to sell this wine. And it's just like, no, actually, I'm going to take my own path and I'm going to yeah. do what I please and I'm going to try and enjoy myself. So Absolutely. And I think that's that's kind of hospitality as well, whether yeah. it's wine or coffee or um, you sort of, I think if you're going to work in it, part of it is doing that, committing to yeah. doing your own thing. Yeah, go hard or go home. <laughs> so what did we learn from Lynn? It turns out coffee and wine do have a lot in common. We also found out that some wine is very expensive. And a good story adds value, but sometimes too much value. Coffee Curious is sponsored by Best Coffee, a global guide to where to drink coffee. You can find Best Coffee in your favourite app store and us at coffeecuriouspodcast.com. Join me next time for more inspiring conversations inspired by coffee.